Mackerel Podcast number 338 for January 23rd, 2013. Welcome to another Mackerel Podcast. I'm Chris Breen. Lately, I've had education on my mind, specifically how schools are changing to adopt and adapt to new technologies, portable devices, and knowledge found on the internet rather than between a book's covers. To learn more, I've turned to an expert in the field, Scotland educator Fraser Spears. Let's speak to him now. I'm joined by Fraser Spears, one of the leading lights on technology in the classroom. Thanks for being here, Fraser. It's a pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, could you give us some background on what you do for those people who, who don't know who you are? Sure. I My job title is the Head of Computing and IT at Cedars School of Excellence, which is a small independent school, a private school in the town of Greenock in Scotland. I know you know an awful lot about technology in the classroom, and you're sort of one of the people that, that all of us look to when we're looking for direction in, in technology. But, um, you know, I'm dealing with my own issues with my daughter and who's her school. So a lot of schools, including my daughters, are still working with a computer lab model. So mm-hmm. how effective is that now or just having a couple of Windows machines in a classroom? I guess we should maybe do just a little bit of background for people who don't know me. One of the things that we did at our school is – uh, we have now, for nearly three years, had a one-to-one iPad deployment at the school. So what the, the reason we came to that decision back in 2010 was that we looked at the, the traditional kind of model of computer use in schools, desktops, laptops, things like that, and we realized that the world was changing away from that. You know, we, we already had a few years under our belt of the iPhone era, and we saw smartphones become increasingly powerful over that period and then we saw the tablet come in. And I guess what we we saw was we realized that a model in which you have, you know, a small proportion of computers for the number of pupils in your school, that's not the way we work. It's not the way we live mm-hmm. or play or organize our, our lives. You know, computers are not that scarce in our society now that we have to share them with each other. And I think back in my own life, the last time I shared a computer with anybody was 1996. Right. Um, you know, computers are just not that rare. Uh, but in school, certainly in our school, the ratio that we had was uh, about one computer for every four pupils in the school. So you, know, you, get, you got about a quarter of a computer to yourself. Uh, and and I, I sat in one day and I thought, you know, if that was the way I had to work, you know, if we had four teachers and we had one computer between us, how would we get our jobs done? You know, it, it's, it's almost inconceivable that you would be required to execute your functions as an employee with that such a small level of computer resource, yet that's the way that we bring our kids up in school. Yeah, because it doesn't seem that um, it's an efi- even efficient use of time. I know, again, in my daughter's school, they all get together, they march down to the lab, half the computers aren't working because they're on a blue screen and the teacher doesn't know how to fix them. And then by the time they do get through maybe half their work, the time's up because they've, they've gone through this schedule and now the next group is waiting to use the computers. And so it does seem terribly inefficient to me. So what is a more appropriate model today? Well, we've gone down the line of, of one, what they call one-to-one computing, which is a term of art, really, that means every pupil has their own computer that is named for them, is dedicated to their use, and is typically not shared uh, on, on a regular basis with any other student in the school. So that's that's not a model that we invented, by the way. That's been established for many, many years in many schools in Australia, New Zealand, 
and certainly in the US and the state of Maine, very famously did a, I think it was about a 50,000 seat iBook laptop program back in the day. Uh, and, and we took a lot of lessons from, from those schools as well. So that was what got us interested in one-to-one. And we took the lessons from laptop schools because I've always taken the view that the iPad is just a computer. It's not a new thing that has to be studied independently of any previous experience with computers in schools. It's just, it's another kind of computer. We, we decided to take a lot of the lessons from existing computer schools and we applied them to our school and this new device called the iPad. And we put the two together and, and got a great result. So do the kids in the school, do they take the laptops home, not laptops, but iPads home, or do they just keep them at school and, and pick them up in the morning? So in our school, we have all grades. We have grades K through 12, or as we call them, primary one through to secondary six in Scotland. And <clears throat> except for the first four years of school, uh, that would be K through third grade in the US, everybody above that age gets to take their iPad home with them every night. Okay. So how is how is the technology introduced? So you start the kids at K or, or in primary all the way through. Do you introduce more complex apps as they go along, or does it depend on how the uh, student is progressing? Yeah, I, I think there, there's definitely, a, there's at least two modes of use with the iPad, and I think there's possibly more if I had more time to study in detail the kind of, I guess, a little bit of anthropology about what is happening with these devices. But... Um, before we deployed the iPad, we expected to see two very different modes of use. One where kids are working through sort of drill applications, if you like, and little games and things. And that would obviously be for the younger students. Then we assumed that the older students, that the sort of high school age, would use the iPad very much the way that you and I would use the iPad. We were right that there was going to be a distinction, but we were completely wrong about where we thought the crossover point would be. So we thought it would be sort of sixth, seventh grade kind of level mm-hmm. it turned out it was about first or second grade um and certainly for five-year-olds and six-year-olds they're using the ipad in that first way that i mentioned but more and more we see kids just a few years older than them using the ipad in, in fairly sophisticated ways uh, okay their ideas aren't as well developed as an older child and so on but they're they're still doing things like sending emails to their teacher building writing stories creating documents you know presentation skills are a really big thing in your school and that dates from before the ipad i should add but those skills that i used to teach as a secondary teacher to kids of maybe 13 14 15 are now being taught to kids of seven eight and nine and that's really one of the big changes that we've seen over the past few years so in that case are you using apps designed specifically for education or are you using more broad use apps like keynote and text uh, editors our, our focus is very much away from specifically educational applications because Scotland has its own curriculum that's not the same as England's or anywhere else's. Uh, it's not a huge market for educational resources, so you typically don't get the very high-quality kind of educational textbooks uh, being produced for iPad and so on that you might get in, in some states in the U.S. So we have tended to focus our efforts much more on generic off-the-shelf productivity applications and yes we'll bring in specific educational applications from time to time but we find that they have a very specific use they're they're kind of they live for a short term Mm -hmm. in the year whereas things like keynote and pages and numbers explain everything garage band uh, and so on those those applications are kind of evergreen and they can be applied to have have a a six-year-old read their story 
into the iPad and put music behind it. And then we can use it for language learning further up the school. And then we can start to get into some audio radio production even further up the school. So we we prefer those kind of apps that can kind of come back again and again. Okay. Um, well, just in terms of practical use, how do you deploy your apps to the uh, to the devices? Well, the way we do it in, uh, in our school is not the way one would start doing it today. Mm-hmm. You, you got to remember that, <clears throat> excuse me, when when we started, there were essentially no tools for, for deploying iPads of any kind. The only tool there was was iTunes. So what I'm about to describe to you is absolutely not the way I'd recommend anybody do it. <laughs> okay. And, so, <laughs> and it's certainly not the way we're going to do it next year. Right. So briefly the, the way we do it right now is is every classroom has an iMac and then all the kids in that classroom would sync their ipad to that itunes library on that iMac um we haven't had the volume purchase program available to us in the uk uh for many years we, we just got it in september last year mm-hmm. uh, which was unhelpfully one week after we opened the school for this mm-hmm. year uh, so <laughs> we missed it by a week um but next year, the, the plan for us is to move to what Apple describes as, as a fully personalized model, where all of our senior pupils will have their own individual Apple ID. We will use the volume purchase program to gift them certain applications. Uh, and then we use iTunes U in the secondary school as well. And what we'll do there is we'll say that um, for applications that are specific to certain courses, they'll be listed in the iTunes U course. And we'll, we're going to treat those applications kind of like... Um, the way we asked parents to bring or to provide a calculator or pencils or pens or uh, textbooks or so on. So, you know, those applications are typically not very expensive. We're not talking about hundreds of pounds worth of software. Mm-hmm. We're talking about maybe four or five, six pounds worth of software for the whole school year. So that's the way we're, we're starting to look at that. Okay. Now, I sense at least over here that there's a fair bit of reluctance from teachers to adopt mobile devices like this because, one, they're not comfortable with the technology. They may not know it as well as their students do. And also teachers have to rewrite their curriculum to incorporate this stuff. So how do you overcome that kind of resistance? Well, I'm going to take certain issue with the premise of your question there, Chris, because I think that I don't see teachers being as reluctant about the iPad as their IT departments are reluctant about the iPad. All right. That those those guys are really reluctant about it. If you see teachers being nervous about it, you want to go and talk to the technicians. Um, so th- there's that part of the conversation as well. But second, the second thing I want to take issue with is the idea that you have to rewrite your curriculum to incorporate the iPad. Okay. And and I think that's a that's certainly something that people uh, are apt to believe. But what I speak about more and more as I go to other schools and talk about this is the idea that you can bring along a lot of the materials you've got with you. And crucial to understanding this is realizing that none of us are trying to build a paperless school. Mm-hmm. So you don't, we're, we're not trying to uh, replace every single thing in the school with the iPad. And this is why I'm really against schools where the entire justification for buying iPads is that we will save money. Because what that does is it drives people to try and use the iPad in situations where it's just not appropriate to use. So we've always had this policy at Cedars of, use the iPad everywhere that it's appropriate and nowhere that it's not. So we still use paper resources. We still have num- a number of books uh, that we rely on day in, day out. But what I think becomes interesting, we, we got in a very interesting point because we're about to have some uh, senior level curriculum changes in Scotland. And 
what that enables us to do now that we've got a couple of years of iPad under our belt is that the next thing you develop, you can develop with the assumption that that technology is going to be available for you. So we always talk about a, a ramp into using this kind of technology where we say, bring the stuff you've got with you, your PowerPoint files, your Word files, your PDFs, that's all going to work. But then the next time you build something, look at what you can do. Here's an app called Explain Everything. Here's iMovie. Here's GarageBand. Here's iTunes U. Here's all these resources in the iTunes U catalog. Look what you can put together now. Mm-hmm. And then that, I think that, that can be very motivational to teachers uh, to, to respect the work that has gone into the stuff they've got, but then say, there's going to be a next time you develop something else. Look at what you'll be able to do next time. Show them iBooks author as well. Right. Okay, well, you mentioned that there are certain places where iPads are appropriate and they're not appropriate. So where are they appropriate and where is traditional uh, media or other methods more appropriate? Well, we don't have any courses where we <clears throat> we um, have have found the iPad completely unusable. We, we use it in every subject to some level, some more than others, and certainly some courses use a much broader range of functionality on the device. So in our English class, for example, the, the two applications they care about are Pages and Safari. Mm-hmm. And and just putting Safari in the hands of every pupil in an English class is transformational because of the access to information and different resources and examples of writing. It's really, really important. Um, where is the iPad not appropriate? Well, I think what we've, we've learned over the past couple of years is that you have to think very carefully about the workflow that you're asking the student to step through. So an early mistake that I made as a teacher was I, uh, I sent out um, a, a worksheet as a PDF. And then I said to the, the kids in the class, right, <clears throat> what I want you to do is I want you to research that worksheet. I want you to use Safari for that. And then I want you to type up your answers uh, and then email it to me. It sounds like a great idea, except when the worksheet's on the iPad screen and then the researcher's on the iPad screen and then they've got to create their response on the iPad screen, then what they ended up doing was they would, they would uh, print out the worksheet at home, do the research, write it down on a piece of paper, and then spend another hour typing a piece of paper <laughs> into, into the uh, pages and then emailing it to me. And that was the, this great electronic workflow that we developed. So I think uh, you've, you've got to think about, are, are you using the iPad as a source of information? Or are you using it as a tool to create? And I think if you that's why we're not doing paperless in such a big way, because paper's still got a role. You know, some quite often it's a temporary copy of something digital now, but you know, you've got to think through that workflow. And that's the most important thing to think about when you're when you're setting work on iPads in schools. Right. And now what about testing? Is the iPad appropriate for that or not so much? We've used it in, in testing in Scotland. The uh, digital testing is only available to students with additional support needs. So we have a number of pupils in, in that category and we are given PDF copies of the paper exam papers, which are form fields that we can fill in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the student can fill in, obviously. We don't fill in for them. <laughs> <laughs> um, they fill it in strictly. And at the end of the exam, they're required to print out their PDF, sign it to show that the printout is what they typed in uh, and then that goes away with the, all the other handwritten papers so we have done um last year we did that for real and in the live exam we used ipads as our computer for filling in those pdf forms and, and that kind of goes along with my philosophy that the ipad is just a computer and it didn't say in any of the regulations you must use microsoft windows version blah 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 
So I said, well, I've, I've got a computer with a PDF reader, pretty good one. Let's yeah. do that. All right. So yeah. what arguments can you make to administrators uh, or the people who handle the money at, at certain schools for implementing this technology? That's a good question. I, I think it, one of the things that I, I often hear is that money is used as, as the first it's the first barrier that goes up in the way of these things. And I think quite often I ask people to step back and think a little bit, you know, actually work it out. How much is it going to cost? And one of the ways we look at it is cost per pupil per month. And we're currently in the middle of our refresh to the newer devices at the moment. And we're looking at costs of, you know, between eight and 10 pounds per pupil per month. It's not a huge amount of money in the context of an overall school budget. So it's, it's easy to look at that and say, well, we could never afford to buy one for everybody. But, you know, a little bit of creative thinking, it, it can be possible. But I think, t- to my mind, like the educational argument is that I, my main concern, and, and different teachers with different focuses will make different arguments, but my main concern is just relevance of the school. Because in a world where the kids are carrying smartphones, they've got, you know, five, six computers in the house at home. I mean, I use computer in the broadest possible sense. You know, we live in a world where people carry two or three computers in their backpack every day. You know, we have multiple computers per person in our Western professional society, and that's where we want our kids to go. I'm concerned that if school becomes a place where no technology is available to them, you know, and looking stuff up on the internet isn't a thing you can do, I'm concerned that school just disconnects so far from reality that it becomes, you know, a strange and irrelevant place to be. Mm-hmm. All right. So if a school were to implement this sort of technology, would they turn back and likely say, well, now we have to hire new IT personnel or consultants to implement this stuff? Uh, how likely is it if you were trying to propose this sort of setup that, that you could say, no, really, your, your existing IT uh, group could support this? I I believe it's personally perfectly possible that that most IT departments can take this on board. Whether they want to um, is another question. And and I think one of the stories about schools in the past 10 or 15 years is that a lot of people who are in uh, IT roles today have spent a lot of time taking Macs or taking Apple products out of schools and replacing them with with Windows-based products. So there may be a kind of reputation thing to get over there with some people. But People often ask me, you know, were you Mac before you went iPad? And the answer is yes, we were, but that hasn't been as much of an advantage as you might think because iOS is sufficiently different from Mac OS X as it is from Windows. And it wasn't a real great advantage to us to be a Mac school ahead of time. So we had to learn the same as everybody else. And, you know, uh, I, I'm the only technician in the school and I also teach. Uh, so it's, uh, it's really a spare time technician effort for our whole school. And, and I spend more time looking after a dozen MacBooks than I do looking after 115 iPads. So what percentage of your time do you think is required to support the technology you have? Well, it takes me a week in the summer to set them up. Um, and once I've got that done, I would say I spend maybe half an hour a week dealing with problems. I'll leave it more if somebody drops one and breaks one. But, you know, in, th- in nearly three years of running this program, I have not once had to, for example, restore uh, an iPad from backup, except in the case of device damage. Nobody's come along and broken their operating system in the way that people could have broken their Mac or their PC. It's been incredibly stable by comparison. Right. Do you protect the iPads in any way? Do you have cases for them? 
Yeah, we do. We we just use the, the you know the original iPad Apple iPad case, mm-hmm. the, the black one with the, with the seams. We've used that since day one. Um, it's held up much better than I thought it would. Some of them have come apart, but I would say it's you know maybe five or eight out of, out of the whole number. We do have a policy where kids can bring their own cover in, subject to certain kind of minimum design requirements, uh, and primarily it's got to close to cover the screen. But you know. Uh, that's the only case we've used. We haven't gone for these incredibly well-defended cases, you know, the big plastic ones with the rubber bumpers on them and so on. And we haven't had spectacular breakage rates. It's in the low single-digit percentages. Interesting, because I thought maybe K through 2, where kids are still working on their large motor skills, that you'd see more damage there, but apparently not. Yeah, they've actually been, well, you know, they've got carpet in their classroom and their desks are closer to the ground, so... Oh, true uh, enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, We've uh, <clears throat> we've not seen noticeably higher breakage rates from that class than from any other class, and in fact, I think they've probably been better than most. Huh? Uh, and which uh, iPads are you using currently? We're still an iPad One right now. Uh, our release was for three years, so that runs from you know August two thousand and ten through to August two thousand and thirteen. So I'm currently in the middle of, or at the beginning of, I should say, looking at what, how we're going to refresh our devices uh, come this summer. Are you going to go with uh, iPad minis or what do you think? We're thinking fourth generation iPad right now. Yeah. And and for a couple of reasons. One, I, I've always had this kind of philosophy about seven inch tablets that they are great as an adjunct to a desktop computer. Mm-hmm. Whereas a 10 inch tablet can uh, have ambitions to replace that computer. And that certainly happened for us because one of the things, features of our school now is that we don't have a computer lab anywhere. The computer lab is the iPads that go around with the kids. So we're kind of all in on personal devices and tablets. So that tablet that we put out there or that computer has to be able to take the entire load of what we want to do with computers in the school. We don't have a computer lab to fall back to if that's not enough. So that's where what I think about the iPad mini. I mean, it's a great device. I've got one. And it goes great with my MacBook Air, but I'm afraid I can't afford to give the kids a MacBook Air and an iPad Mini together. <laughs> right. And nobody wants to give up their iPad. Well, yeah. So uh, with the iPad 1, are you finding there are any limitations that you're hitting? And you're just thinking, oh, I would so love to use this app, but I can't because I need iOS 6 or it's this isn't fast enough for it. Well, we're starting to see more of that now, admittedly. Um, the biggest complaint from our teachers really has been the lack of a camera. And, and, you know, those cameras have been there for a couple of generations mm-hmm. now, although the iPad 2 camera is not really much to write home about when you use it indoors, such as in a classroom. That's the number one thing te- uh, teachers want and pupils want, is they want a camera on their device to shoot video and take pictures. Uh, there aren't too many apps that are unavailable to us right now. We're still running iOS 5, obviously. That's the last version that's going to run on our devices. But we haven't found too many applications that are going for iOS 6 only just yet. The biggest problem with existing applications is typically that some of the developers have rather lost their discipline in terms of using uh, as, as much minimal memory resources as possible. So we're finding increased kind of incidents of crashes and things related to low memory on iPad 1s because obviously an iPad 1 has about a quarter of the memory of a, a third or fourth generation iPad. Mm-hmm. So speaking of developers, if you had the opportunity to talk to developers who are creating educational software or ebooks. What would you suggest to them to help make better products for your classroom? Well, I think the first thing is is to please don't confuse 
uh, content and code or don't co-mingle them, I think it would be my request. Too often I see things that used to be books repackaged as an app mm-hmm. with essentially very little functional benefit except that it maybe plays sound or something. And I'm always really very, very wary about buying content as code because that requires that the publisher will come back and fix it for iOS 7 and iOS 8 and new sizes of iPad and so on. And I have to say that in my experience, I'm not that confident that that will happen. So I, I, if I'm buying content, I'd prefer to buy it as some kind of book, an EPUB or a PDF or something like that. Whereas the applications, I'm, we, there are so many great applications. I mean, you couldn't list them all. But I think that if it comes when it comes to educational content, uh, you want to separate the content from the applications. And then the second thing that I, I see developers getting wrong quite a lot is that any kind of game or drill or anything that has progression it very often starts quite easy and then just gets too hard much too quickly, mm-hmm. uh, certainly for younger kids. And I think taking some advice from teachers on what's appropriate uh, and what kind of ramp of skill and difficulty is appropriate would be uh, a good idea for most developers. All right. So what could Apple do with its devices and operating system to make its products better for the classroom? Have you got another hour for the podcast? <laughs> yes, I do. This is unlimited. Go as long as you like. <laughs> Um, I think my, my, in terms of the device, my number one request uh, has been for about a year now that if, if they would just double the storage every level, that would be really great. Um, because a 16 gigabyte iPad for education now is a pretty tight affair and we are looking towards uh, 32 gig iPads, at least for our senior pupils in the next round, because applications are getting bigger, um, content is getting ever higher definition the cameras on the device are shooting ever more resolution uh, higher resolution you know we've got 1080p in the back camera 720p in the front camera now and i think um you know as over as you go over the years as well you know you just build up more and more and more content and i think uh if we could have 32 64 and 128 gig devices then uh, that, that would definitely help in terms of hardware that, that's a big one right um, I think the second one in terms of hardware is probably to uh, solve the charging times issue on the newer iPads. That's something I am concerned about a little bit because with a, a, a original iPad, if a child forgets to charge it before they bring it to school, you can lend them a charger and give them an emergency juice up and that'll be enough after an hour or two to get them through the whole day. Whereas with a, a newer generation iPad, that's just not going to happen. There are now increasingly numbers of... Um of other devices. There are all these uh, less expensive Android devices. And why should a school look at Apple when maybe they can get a whole school full of Nexus 7s with more storage? And, um, and, it, and of course, it's open. It's, so that's good, right? Uh, could be good. Yeah. Uh, it certainly, I mean, it, it could be good in some situations, right? You know, for example, if you want to do a whole series of classes where you hack a whole bunch of software together, I mean, that's potentially a, a good use of having an open uh, TM device. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I guess, you know, I'm concerned about Android from the point of view that I don't see big commitments to the device from, from Android develop and not developers, but vendors, you know, uh, it's apart from the pure Google devices, you know, the Nexus 7 and so on. I'm 
you know, we've had one device, one iPad, and we've had three generation, major generations of the operating system with the same hardware. And I don't see MD getting that experience in the Android world. Now I'm talking about sending a lease for three years mm-hmm. on hardware equipment, and I don't see three-year commitment to one device from any Android vendor. Um, so that's a concern. And if I don't get that, then I'm, we're starting to look at, you know, do I get security patches, you know, and so on and so on. And, you know, if you are going to be able to download software from the web and sideload it onto your device, you're going to want the best security you can get in that environment. And it seems to me that um, people running Android tend to be running uh, in a much more risky scenario, particularly if you've bought the cheaper Android devices that typically aren't shipping with the latest and greatest software. Uh, you know, if you buy a premium Android device, then yeah, you're probably getting Android 4.1, possibly 4.2. But if you buy something for $60 at Walmart, you're not getting the latest and greatest stuff and you're not you're not going into a relationship with the vendor in that, in that respect. So I think that's something to be concerned about over the long term. And uh, as for the Kindle Fire, I mean, the Kindle Fire was massively popular at Christmas with kids in our school. I think it was probably just about neck and neck with the iPad Mini as a Christmas gift. Um, and the thing about the Kindle Fire, I mean, I think it's a nice enough device, but Amazon's business model is, and it's, this is not a secret, Jeff Bezos has been on stage and explicitly said, we want to make money when you use the device, which is great if you're Amazon. Right, right. And it's great, it's, it's great if you're a consumer as well. If you want to be showing new things to buy and, and the next thing to watch, that's great. But the flip side of that is you don't get to use the device without paying, mm-hmm. really. I mean, you do technically, but you see my point is that all of the design and all of the, the sort of bias and the leading in the interface is going to be towards showing you new things to buy. And that's a great product, but I don't feel that's the right thing for the classroom. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I wanted to go back to Apple for a second and, um, yeah. and the operating system. Do you use restrictions at all on the devices, particularly for the younger kids? Uh, yes, we do. Yeah, we do. Um, there are some new restrictions in iOS 6 that we, we look forward to taking advantage of. But we the big one that we use is um, age-appropriate restrictions in the iTunes store. So because we want to be flexible about the software on the device, we there is a restriction that says don't allow installing any apps at all. And that basically takes the app store off the device, mm-hmm. which is great for a very locked-down environment. But because we want to be able to deploy new software. Turning on that restriction turns off the ability to even sync applications from iTunes to the device. So it's not like you could get them on another way. We, so we leave the, the, the app store open, but we use um, our own Apple IDs to get stuff on the device, not the students. But what we do also apply is we apply age-appropriate limitations so that kids can't see the screenshots and the icons of 17-plus applications. Uh, and they, even if they could download them, they couldn't run them. That's our main one, um, and, and it would be nice to have some other controls. There are things in iOS 6, for for example, turning off uh, FaceTime and iMessage and things like that. And we're, we're not necessarily going to turn all those off on the first day, but one of the important things in a situation like ours is to have that as a sanction if you need it. You know, So mm-hmm. you know, if you cause me a problem with the camera, I'm going to turn off your camera by configuration. Not that I'm going to ban everybody from using the camera on the first day. Right. The big difference there. Yeah, and that seems to be one of the arguments I hear from schools that don't want to use mobile technology at this point. They say, well, if, if every kid has a iPad in front of them, they're going to be using Instagram and they're going to be chatting with their friends and they're not going to be paying attention to the lesson. And how do you deal with that? Do you basically just sit down with the kids at the beginning of the year and say, look, these are the rules and we have an agreement and this is 
what you need to do in order to use this stuff and have a successful youth school year? Um, yeah, we do that. You know, acceptable use policy is an important part of any deployment like this. And being very clear about it and being very explicit about it and also taking feedback on it as well. So, for example, that I mentioned to you earlier about um, kids bringing their own case for their iPad. That was a change that we made in response to student request. Uh, that wasn't part of the original policy. But we do, at the beginning of every year, I, I go around every class and I sit them all down and I say, guys, we're going to read the acceptable use policy together. And if you don't understand any of it, we're going to talk about it just now. And once we're done here, I know that you know what is expected of you. Um, and... At the same time, there's a responsibility on our teachers to manage their classrooms and to teach their lessons in such a way that it isn't so catastrophically boring as people <laughs> are desperate to get away from this lesson to do something else. So we expect our teachers both to um, be engaging and relevant in the classroom, and we also expect them to practice just what are fairly basic classroom management strategies. And I mentioned when I talked about the cases, one of the things was the case has to close to cover the screen. And that's a protection measure on one hand, but on the other hand, it's a classroom management tool as well. Because you get up in front of a class, you don't start your lesson until everybody's iPad is closed and their eyes are on you. Right. And it's things like that, you know, simple things like that that really get across a lot of those issues. And I've been in other schools where the teachers haven't quite figured that out yet. And it can be chaos. It really can. Oh, yeah. Well, how many students per class do you have? It varies um, wildly in our school because we're small. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got classes from two upwards. Yeah, uh, I, I have the privilege of teaching two children in one class. Um, but more, our, our, in our younger years, the classes are between 15 and 18. Okay. Yeah, because I think some public school teachers will say, well, yes, that's fine when you, you're teaching you know, a number of students in the teens, but we have 30 kids in our classroom. And how do you manage that? Well, a couple of the ways that, that we deal with that are um, you'll find a lot of our classrooms, if you came to visit our school, you'll see a lot of our classrooms don't have a front and a back in the way that a traditional classroom would have, right? So one of the things that our teachers have started to do is, is be much more mobile around the classroom. And if you think about the way that a traditional um, computer lab is, is set up, you would typically see... Uh, laptops, you know, with the screen standing up and the teacher on one side of that device and the pupil on the other. Now, with the iPad, that device is, is typically flat or only slightly inclined on the desk. So um, one teacher standing up in the classroom can get an overview of a lot more screens than they could if they were just standing at the front of a traditional computer lab. So teachers walking around. And also, you can see very much more clearly, because there aren't physical obstacles on the desk, you can see much more clearly the sort of body language of the students in the class. And if the iPad is you know, being surreptitiously propped up against your vision, or it's down under the table, or it's being <laughs> sneakily shown to someone else, you know, th these are just the, the classroom management. This is all the same experience that we have with... Um, you know, a piece of paper going around the back of the classroom right. or, you know, th these are not new distraction and being off task uh, and disruption in the classroom are not things that were just invented in 2010 because the iPad came out. True enough. Okay. So where can people interested in this technology, including teachers and administrators go for more information? Um, well, for me, my blog is spears.org, which is S-P-E-I-R-S.org. And I also have our, our weekly podcast with a friend of mine, Bradley Chambers, uh, and that is called Out of School, and the website for that is outofschool.net, 
or you can find it on the iTunes podcast store. Excellent. Well, I will link to both of those. And thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure. And that wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast. I'd like to thank Fraser Spears and, of course, you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-967-3622. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, macOS, iOS, and technology news, views, and information at macworld.com. See you around.